All right. Well, like Becky said, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here at River City. Thanks for coming this morning. So, so our preaching series this summer is about the attributes of God. So the last several weeks, we've had sermons about God's self-existence, about God's all-powerfulness, about God's all-knowingness, God's compassion, the fatherhood of God, the holiness of God, the justice of God. And then this morning, I'm going to be preaching about the truthfulness of God. And to do that, we're just going to keep, uh, keep it simple and do three things. Uh, we're going to be looking at John 14 and just seeing what that says about the truthfulness of God. Then I'm going to be talking about uh, how the truthfulness of God changes us. And then we're going to be responding to him by taking communion together. So the sermon's going to be a little shorter than usual because I was gone most of the last week. So don't applaud, applaud in your heart, but not out loud. All right, so let's pray. God, thank you so much um, for you. Thank you so much for your son. Um, thank you. Like The only way that we grow is by our hearts and minds just beholding the glory of who you are, Jesus. So we can't um, manufacture that. We can only ask you to um, empower us to see you clearly um, and to be captivated by you. So we just pray for that individually, for collectively. I pray you just um, really grow us in that regard. So your word is powerful enough for that. So I pray your spirit will just use that to that end. And we love you. Amen. All right, well, we're going to go to John chapter 14, verses 1 through 7. So you can open, uh, open up in your Bible to that or on your, or on your phone or also be up on the screen. So I'll be reading out of the NIV translation. So Jesus says to his disciples, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told... Would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. Thomas, who's one of the disciples, said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. So we're not going to suck the marrow out of the passage, um, of everything in this passage, but I'm just going to give an overview of what's going on in this passage, and then we're eventually going to hone in on uh, what this passage says about the, God's attribute of truthfulness. So... In this passage, Jesus is talking to his 11 remaining disciples um, the night before he's crucified. So this is going on like, this is the second to last day of Jesus' life. And he's having a meal with his disciples that's often called the Last Supper. So everything that Jesus ever said is important because it's Jesus. But the stuff that he chose, that he chose to say on this night seems especially noteworthy because he knew that the next day he was going to be brutally murdered. So imagine if you knew for sure that you were going to be dying the next day. You would probably be extra thoughtful about what you said and who you said it to. And Jesus is in a similar situation here. Even though Jesus is said to be troubled in chapter 13, right before this chapter here, because he's headed to the agony of the cross, we see in this passage that he's... He's the one comforting his disciples. 
And in verses 1 through 4, we see the big picture point that, like, um, that he's trying to make to his disciples is that their hearts don't need to be troubled because his departure will be beneficial to them. He says, my father has a heavenly housing community. It has room enough for all my disciples. And that's what I'm going to be preparing for you through my death and my resurrection. I'm not going to forget about you. You're part of the family. I'm going to come back and get you. So in Jewish culture, uh, an extended family often had this set of conjoining rooms connected to the house of the patriarch of the family. And that entire extended family lived in community together right there. So it's a little bit different than what we have like here in Iowa. So when a young Jewish couple would want to become what we would consider engaged, they would get together and they would do this uh, intertwined arm thing while holding glasses of wine and they would like drink together. Like some weird, I mean, some, I don't know. It's not like you see that on the Bachelorette, but like it's just that's what they did to get engaged. And like they would like, after they do the intertwining cup thing, it's like, I mean, that was like their cultural equivalence of getting down on one knee and proposing. So after they do the intertwining arm thing, the guy would typically say to his new future wife, I'm going to go to my father's house and I'm going to prepare a place for you. And when I'm done preparing for it, like I'm going to be coming back and I'm going to bring you with me. So then the guy would go to his father's land where the whole extended family lived together in this circular set of uh, conjo large conjoining rooms connected to the father's house. And the guy would literally build a cool addition to the father's house for them to live in. It wasn't a penthouse or anything. It was a room, okay? But like he was building a room for them in his father's house. And when he was done building it, he would come back to get his future wife in this really triumphant way. So it was just, I think they had instruments and that kind of stuff. And they would just come in this triumphal way. It was like, the bridegroom's coming! Hey, it's like then like the, the bride would come with them and then they would have the wedding ceremony and then get married just like that. And they don't do that now. <laughs> anyway, so back to chapter 14. Uh, when Jesus is saying these things to his disciples in verses one through four, they should have understood the basics of what he's saying. Like you're part of the family. When I leave, it's because I'm preparing a permanent heavenly place of residence for you to live with the rest of my heavenly father's family. Through my death and resurrection, I'm going to be making enough room for all of my disciples. There's room enough for everyone at my father's house. And I'm taking you all with me. This is a bad thing that I'm leaving, but it's going to be a good thing in the end. All the sadness that you're going to experience when I leave you, it's all going to be worth it in the end. You know the way to the place where I'm going. And then Thomas opens his mouth in verse 5. Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Verse 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There ain't nobody that comes to the Father except through me. And if you've seen me, that means you've seen the Father. Hebrews chapter 1 in the New Testament says that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. And that's what Jesus is getting at when he says in John chapter 14, 7, like, if you really know me, you will know my father as well. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. And the upshot of that is, 
if you want to know who God is, then you need to know Jesus. If you want to know who God is, then you need to know who Jesus is. And that's important because often people make understanding who God is to be really, really complicated. And if that's what you've experienced, you might need to read and reread verse 7 and remind yourself that if you want to know who God is, then the main thing that you need to do is, and lean into is knowing and understanding who Jesus is. Why? Because Hebrews 1 says that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Or in the words of Jesus, he's the way and he's the truth and he's the life. And we could do a whole sermon on each of those things, the way, the truth, and the life. But for the scope of this sermon, we're just going to hone in on what he says about being the truth. If what Jesus says is true in verse 7, then if you know who Jesus is, then you know who God is, then he can rightfully and non-arrogantly say, I am the truth. Jesus doesn't say in verse 6 that he merely says true things. No, he says, I am the truth. If my daughter said to me, Dad, I'm going to eat chocolate pudding, I'd be like, okay. If my daughter came up to me and said, Dad, I am chocolate pudding, I'd be like, what? And there is a colossal difference between those two statements. Jesus says, I am the truth. When we think of truth, we often think of true statements or true facts. But in John chapter 14, truth is summed up as a person. And that truth has a, and truth has a name, and that name is Jesus. Titus chapter 1 in the New Testament talks about how God has promises that he has made. And parenthetically, the author of, of Titus grounds the certainty of those promises in the terse but loaded phrase of God comma, who does not lie. And you know why God doesn't lie? Because truthfulness is at the very nature of who God is. Truthfulness is at the very nature of who God is. And there's many of us in the room who are somewhere in the process of considering who God is, but for a minute, let's all just assume that there is an all-powerful God who describes himself as a father and who wants to be eternally connected in a relationship with us. And let's just say that hypothetically, at some point, we discover that not everything that God says to us is actually true. If that was the case, that would be crushing. And unfortunately, some of, you have had that, some of you have had that kind of experience with your earthly fathers. If you haven't had that experience, that's great. But some of you have had the experience where at some point you discovered that your dad lied to you in a big way and wasn't truthful with you or with your family. And that probably crushed you and for good reason because regardless of whether you self-identify as a Christian or not, like everyone knows in one way or another, it is crushing for your father to not be truthful. And you need to know that your heavenly father is the true and the better version of your earthly father because it's impossible for him to lie. He is always truthful to us. That's because truthfulness is irrevocably embedded into who he is. 
And we vividly see that in the person of Jesus, who boldly comes to us with a declaration of, I am the truth. So Jesus is the fullest embodiment of the truthfulness of God. And with all that being said, how does the truthfulness of God change us? How does the truthfulness of God change us? So think about it. Why is it important and good to be truthful at all? Like there are lots of reasons that are easy to come up with, such as like people will trust you if you're more if you're truthful. People might get um, mad at you if you aren't truthful. Truthfulness seems to be good for the flourishing human flourishing in general. And if you're truthful, that you don't need to get stressed out thinking about all the fa- figuring out all the remembering all the fabrications that you told various people and trying to harmonize them into an Excel spreadsheet or something like that. So, and all those reasons are true, but. The, The problem is that you don't need to be a Christian to believe all that. But from a Christian perspective, being characterized by being truthful is important because truthfulness is at the very nature of who God is. Being truthful is important because we are worshipers of the one who declared, I am the truth. Bottom line, we all dabble in various forms of not being truthful, such as lying and falsehoods and stretching the truth, inappropriate fabrications, whatever you want to call that, we all dabble in that. So when you, when you say that you don't have time to do something, but you know you actually do, when you act like you really know a lot about something, but you know you actually don't, when you exaggerate and frame yourself as the protagonist and hero of a story, but, but in reality you weren't as noble and blameless as you're making yourself out to be, when you exaggerate something on your LinkedIn profile so you can catch the eye of all the recruiters that are looking for you out there, like when you conveniently with, withhold important information in a business meeting at work so that you can get things done the right way. Like when you cut corners on your personal finances, when you're talking to a customer service rep and you're not completely forthcoming about how something broke because you would still like to be eligible for that warranty. Like when you're privately talking to a good friend about your vacation with your spouse and you tell them everything you did except how you and your spouse got pretty drunk for most of it, when for whatever reason you consistently put forth a false version of yourself to others. There's an image that you are trying to project and you're in the habit of putting on a mask around some people and then taking it off and then around a different group of people you put on a different kind of mask. Why do we do all that kind of stuff in the first place? Like the reason is because whether, regardless of whether you self-identify as a Christian or not, we lack truthfulness. When we lack truthfulness, we're doing so because on a heart level, we want to be saved from something. Because on a heart level, we want to be saved from something. So the question is, what are you wanting to be saved from? So for example, if your personal hell at work is not being adequately recognized or not being promoted or having your supervisor be displeased with you, then you are going to be tempted to use lying and falsehoods to save you from all the things you fear at work. But the way out of that is to believe that Jesus is the one who saves you from all those things. Jesus is the one who ultimately sees you and approves of you through faith in him. And when we believe that in our heart, that frees us to be characterized by 
truthfulness and appropriate levels of vulnerability, even when that vulnerability is going to cost us. Jesus says, I am the truth. And he wants to be the one who saves you from all those things. If your personal hell is not having enough money, then you're going to be tempted in your various financial dealings to use lying and falsehoods to save you from all the things you fear about not having money, such as a loss of comfort, a loss of status, and a loss of security. But the way out of that is to believe that Jesus is the one who saves you from all those things. Through faith in Jesus, he's hardwired you to receive your truest comfort from him. And through faith in Jesus, he's the one who provides your truest sense of security and status. He's the true provider of comfort and status and security. And when you believe that, you're free then to walk in truthfulness in stuff like your financial dealings. Jesus says, I am the truth. And he wants to be the one who saves you from all those things. If there's something about your past or something about you that you have guilt or embarrassment or shame about, often in those kind of situations, your personal hell is being exposed or being found out or just plain being known. And of course, not everyone needs to know everything about us, of course. But the good news is that through faith in Jesus, two things are fully and equally true. We are fully known and we are fully loved. If you, fear, um, if you fear being exposed or being found out, then the good news of the gospel says that you've already been found out. Like all of your sin and all of your folly has been exposed and found out, but through faith in Jesus, you've been completely forgiven and made new. God fully knows you, and he fully loves you. Paige, uh, she got uh, baptized here last Sunday, and she gave her testimony before she got baptized. She, could, she said this kind of stuff way, more than, way better than I ever could. She said uh, when she was giving her testimony, she's like, she's like, God loves you. Not the you that you, you're pretending to be, not the you that, you that you're trying to become. No, he loves the real, actual version of you. And when you believe that you are fully safe and secure through faith in Jesus, what that does is that relaxes you and it frees you to take off the mask and pursue healthy levels of vulnerability and transparency. Not just with God, that is foundational and vital. Not just with God, though, but also with others. Jesus says, I am the truth. And he wants to be the one who saves you from all those things. So when we take communion here at River City, that's a symbolic way of responding to him in faith. When you take communion, that's you, de- that's you declaring in faith, like, Jesus, I believe you when you say you are the truth. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for dying for me. Thank you for living the life that I was supposed to live. Thank you for dying the, um, for dying the death that I deserved. Thank you for your resurrection. I need you to continue changing my heart because I want who you are to keep being good news to me. Thank you for that I'm fully known and I'm fully loved. Thank you for freeing me to walk in truthfulness and thank you for forgiving me when I fail and sin against you. 
Like, I'd encourage you, pray on your own about those things And when, when the worship team is up here. And anytime during those three songs that they're playing, you can walk back in truthfulness and take communion. Like, there's two communion stations in the back. Um, there's, there's the bread and there's the juice. You take the bread, you dip it in the juice. The bread symbolizes his body. The drink symbolizes his blood. And those things were broken and shed for you. If you aren't a follower of Jesus, I'd encourage you to fall off, call, um, just to hold off on taking communion. Um, just because like, you don't want to go, be going through like empty religious rituals where you're just going through the motion with stuff. Like God isn't into that and you shouldn't be either. But, but like, if you're ready to receive him, through faith as your forgiver and as your leader, then talk to him and pray to him on your own, in your own words, in the language of your own heart. Surrender to him and then just go back in truth and take communion. Let's pray. God, we're really thankful for you and thank you for being um, the embodiment of everything, of the Father. And thank you so much for um, being our forgiver and our leader and our friend and yeah, I pray that you will empower us to walk in truthfulness, but not just uh, for this, not just um, not just as not as a checklist like what, like what Becky was talking about during announcements, but really like as a response and a reflection um, and gratitude for who you are. Yeah, so I pray that you'll just like empower us to see the glory of who you are, Jesus, and we can't do that without you. We love you. Amen.